Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Bogota, Colombia today with Porter Erisman, who is the best-selling author of Alibaba's World, a former VP from Alibaba, and now a, uh, an e-commerce and digital expert at large uh, on the emerging world. Porter, this is an unusual place for us to meet. <laughs> yeah, on the one hand unusual, but on the one hand usual, because this is, this is where I'm looking actually. The frontier for e-commerce was in China maybe 15 years ago, now it's places like Colombia, Latin America. And, and we're both here, I guess, at the Frontiers, uh, speaking at this really interesting event. And, uh, you know, I was amazed listening to your talk because I spent many years living in China and Hong Kong myself. And I think in the late 90s, I actually had a pizza with Jack Ma. Uh, yeah, we, we were, you told me. We were at this weird restaurant in the peak. And mm. uh, the guy I was working for at the time, I think he was looking at potentially investing in, in Jack, um, which would have been a smart thing to do, I <laughs> think, in retrospect. Right. Well, the funny thing, there are a number of people who they never imagined, you know, Jack went knocking on a lot of doors before he got his first investment. And here was this kind of funny looking school teacher. Very unassuming, no, very humble. Yeah, humble, nice. And But he would, he talked about these big things he was going to do to change the world. And so I think uh, it's hard to know the difference when you meet someone. Are they genius or are they kind of a madman? And probably he came across as a little bit of a crazy guy, like cute with good intentions. But I think very few people in the early days could have imagined he would build something um, as big as Alibaba has become. How did he scale it? I mean, how do you go from being an English teacher to running a $200 billion company? Uh, I think, well, one of his best skills is that he's just tenacious. I mean, he just keeps trying things and running ahead. He's optimistic. Um, He also obviously had a good amount of vision to sort of see where e-commerce would go in China and Asia. But I think his best skill is just building a team. So, you know, most people, most companies, they, if you talk about Google, they have a couple founders or Yahoo had a couple founders or Microsoft. Alibaba had 18 co-founders and Jack Ma, he brought together his uh, classmates or his uh, students from the schools that he taught at. And he just brought together this ragtag team in his apartment and he's great at building a team um, of even of ordinary people, but just get them to work as a team. A lot of times you see in the World Cup, uh, one team may go way far into the finals or, and um, they don't have any superstars, but they just work well passing the ball, working as a team. What was his management style like? Was he, was he quite, I mean, people say that Jeff Bezos is quite authoritarian, uh, you know, and there are other people who like to play off people politically against each other. What was he like? You know, was, he, was he really a, was he a coach? Uh, he was more a coach. He's, I mean, almost what you'd expect from a teacher. And, you know, in some ways, we're all like students because he really just wanted to encourage people. So he would get people to chase a goal. He wouldn't get them like a lot of Asian uh, bosses try to get the everyone to make the boss happy, do what the boss says. He would set a goal for us. We'd all chase the goal. Um, but like a teacher, he would, you know, encourage us, give us the tools to grow and develop. But then at the end of the semester, if we hadn't done a good job and uh, he would point it out and he'd be pretty strict in his grading of us too. But overall, he was good at building a consensus. If anything, in the early days, he was too nice. He was kind of afraid to say no to people. And as he evolved as a CEO, he learned 
that yeah he had to be tougher and say no to people when they approached him with new ideas sometimes one of the most interesting things you've written and spoken about is this idea that you know alibaba succeeded in china because it developed its own metaphors um, and ebay and amazon were really born out of a uniquely based western experience of retail can you unpack that a little yeah so the uh you know the documentary i made it's called crocodile on the yangtze and it's taken from a quote where jack ma would say uh ebay is a shark in the ocean alibaba is a crocodile in the yangtze river if we fight in the ocean we'll lose but if we fight in the river we'll win and he said that basically as a metaphor that say hey we knew the local terrain we knew the local customer if we just started with them and worked backwards building our platform to serve them that we were at a big advantage over these uh, you know, foreign competitors. So, you know, some people they ask, did Alibaba succeed because they were protected by the government or did they succeed because they had advantages that Western companies didn't have that where the government was restricting the Western companies? Actually, I think it's a real case of a true uh, innovation coming out of China. Now that they're so big, um, they may be a little bit more protected by the Chinese government. But in the early days, why they the reason they're so successful is they just focused on doing what was right for China rather than uh, just trying to copy a Western model. What, what was the cultural genesis of these Western models? Uh, do you really see them as collectibles? I mean, what, what effectively was digitized in the Western world? So yeah, retail, you know, when you think about when e-commerce came along in the US, um, retail was already so developed. Pretty much all you had to do is reach out your hand and you can get what you want. You could get a Coke at the vending machine. <laughs> you could, you know, walk to the 7-Eleven and get something. Or you could, okay, drive a few minutes to the, the shopping center and pretty much get what you want. Um, so it was all very uh, convenient already. And then Amazon came along and said, why are you keeping all this inventory in all these shops? Why don't I just put it in a central warehouse and we'll just let you buy online, have it shipped. And so in China, it was totally different. I mean, retail was fragmented, logistics was bad, payment was bad. So Alibaba had to build it all, uh, you know, we kind of had to build it ourselves. Just like Steve Jobs had to create the operating system for the iPhone, um, what Jack Ma did was build the operating system for e-commerce to work in China, where it almost starting from scratch. But there was a kind of a tradition of these little mom and pop stores. Right. And is that what gave the inspiration to something like Taobao? Um, yeah, I think that the uh, mom and pop stores in China, the nice thing that you see, I think, in emerging markets is the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. And it's just because there hasn't been time for everything to get consolidated. I mean, one of the downsides of Western life now in developed countries is that everyone's so specialized into their little niche that you don't really get to be your own boss. So in China, they say it's better to be the head of a chicken than the tail of a phoenix. And that basically means you can <laughs> so it's Chinese. better to chart your own future, even if it's doing something that might seem boring, like selling ball bearings at a local shop. Better to do that than work at a big multinational. So yeah, there's all that entrepreneurial spirit already existing in China, coming out of years of sort of pent up uh, frustration of the communism and so that spirit was basically just ready to take off and e-commerce because Jack Ma made the platforms basically a platform where entrepreneurs could come and sell products it captured that and moved everything online before it had a chance to develop in the offline world 
And, and there are these Taobao villages, aren't there? Like it's actually transformed the rural landscape. Right. It's um, yeah. There, China had a problem where um, so many people were migrating from the villages to the towns that it was leaving entire villages abandoned. And sometimes you had older people out there, and to the point that China had to make rules like where they made laws that uh, kids needed to visit their parents, uh, you know, on a regular basis. I don't know if everyone <laughs> follows that, but. But what Taobao did is basically it created a place where you could be located anywhere in China and open a storefront. And so these villages popped up. A lot of times they were like small villages where someone was a craftsman and they were known for one specialty product from that village and they were able to create a storefront and sell throughout China. And um, there are now hundreds if not thousands of these villages where uh, a big portion of the local economy is based on selling on Taobao or Tmall. What is the differences between Tmall and, and Taobao? So Taobao, which means search for treasure, um, that's, if you think of it, it's like the flea market on the edge of the town where it's dirty and dusty. You go out there, you see products, uh, you might get a bargain, you might find something you could never find anywhere else, one of these long tail products. but. Um, you don't always know the quality of it, you know. If you get this iPhone from this little seller, is it uh, brand new or was it refurbished and then packaged again or was it stolen? Was it Sun's iPhone? Or was it like a fake one or something? Yeah. And so what Tmall is, instead of uh, going to the local flea market on the edge of town, Tmall is like the glossy shopping mall in the middle of the city where the actual brands or authorized dealers come and sell the products. So to the seller, they know they're getting authentic goods. Uh, they know they're getting, um, you know, maybe better guarantees. Um, and then from a seller's perspective, they have a channel to assure their customers that they're selling things that are, you know, high quality. Well, when you look at Tmall, it doesn't look like the kind of e-commerce websites that we're used to in the West. It seems to be, I think you said, there's a, a mashup between a brand destination and a catalog. Right. Um, and, the, and there's a very, uh, it, it really feels like the, the stuff you'd normally see dispersed around the entire brand universe is all concentrated there on one gigantic scrolling page. Exactly. You know, the agencies in China now, um, they're getting squeezed a little bit because they realize that they don't have all the channels available to them because all the shopping, you know, our goal at uh, Alibaba, our goal was to make Taobao and then Tmall the most fun place to shop in China. Right. So it wasn't just the best place to shop online. It was the most fun place to shop on China in any environment. And so we weren't just trying to be an online channel. We were trying to create an amazing experience. And that meant that okay, we let people post videos and get to know each other and chat. I mean, it's a mashup, really, of a Facebook plus an Amazon plus an eBay plus uh, your own individual website plus search engine advertising. <laughs> now, um, and but that still doesn't explain it. You know, the, a lot of times people like to say, oh, this is the eBay of China or the Amazon. I think it's actually uh, its own model. And what you're seeing now actually is people in India, entrepreneurs say, oh, we're the Alibaba of India. They're fighting for that title. Or in Indonesia, people are fighting to say, well, we're the Alibaba of Indonesia. So um, there's definitely more of an entertainment aspect in it than you see, you know, in a conventional stark Western site. And the live chat things in particular are really interesting. Uh, 
And it's, it's curious how that's now moved onto other platforms. So like on Weixin or WeChat, there's an entire ecosystem around people buying goods just through chat. Yeah, it's um, what you see in uh, Southeast Asia now is actually interesting. People create shops on Facebook or Instagram. Now, the, the fa funny thing is that tells you something. It tells you the e-commerce platforms are not really doing the best job they can in those markets because Facebook, Instagram are not set up for e-commerce. Mm. So either Facebook should set up an e-commerce platform that's very social or the e-commerce platforms should add more social elements to their platform because um, the, what happens is in Asia especially people like to buy and sell things through friends, friends of friends. Maybe someone wants to sell jewelry. They have a friend who manufactures it in their hometown. Um, and so, yeah, it's all very social and that's how trust flows in Asia. So as I mentioned in my talk, that's how you know you can trust someone. If it's a friend of a friend of a friend, okay, you can see there's a relationship there. So I'm more likely to send money to this person than an absolute stranger online. This is sort of counter, counter to a lot of the assumptions made by China and Asia in the early days of the internet, which was that people don't trust each other. There's no um, you know, history of e-commerce or delivery or logistics or credit cards. Uh, essentially, how were people able to overcome those obstacles? Was it just by literally having to build on the ground the entire infrastructure? Uh, yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, I think what I try to tell entrepreneurs I talk to is that, you know, entrepreneurs don't complain about problems, they solve them. And so a lot of the first time I came to Colombia, where we are, is people said, oh, e-commerce doesn't work here because, you know, we're totally different from these other countries. We don't have credit cards. People don't trust each other. But that's the entrepreneur's job. That's the entrepreneur's opportunity. And so if you build that infrastructure, just like Steve Jobs built the ecosystem for the computer and then the iPhone. And so he got a bigger percentage of the spoils for Apple. So the role of the entrepreneur is to build the infrastructure, not sit around and wait for it to be built. So you should actually be excited when you see things are difficult. Yeah, I think the that's why, um, you know, I think if I had wanted to become a billionaire when I left, I knew how to do it is go to India, go to Southeast Asia, go to Latin America, because you see the exact same conditions and the exact same assumptions of people saying e-commerce can't work here. But I had seen from my experience at Alibaba that, you know, we had cracked the code for building an e-commerce ecosystem in a, a fragmented, low-trust environment. And I just knew it was a matter of time before it started happening in other places. In some ways, in solving one of those pieces, probably one of the most difficult around payments, uh, you know, Jack Ma actually created something that could be much more valuable than all the other pieces combined. Yeah. Uh, so you know, let's talk a little bit about Alipay and um, uh, really how that's evolved because it, I think that's really intriguing, you know, what's happening with payments now in China. Well, this is a perfect example. And so when people got started with e-commerce, they said, well, there's no credit card, so how is anyone going to pay? Um, yeah. Actually, payments is pretty easy. It's sending money from one person to another. That doesn't take that much technological savvy. Um, it was more like a regulatory issue. Um, so what uh, we did with Alipay was instead of making it a direct payment like a PayPal where you send the money, we realized that um, there was a trust issue of the risk. But the buyer and seller is chicken and egg. Who's going to send the money first? Who's going to send the product first? And so we made Alipay an escrow based system where the money was held by Alipay, which everyone trusted, until the buyer said that they'd received the product and it was fine and the money was then forwarded to the seller. But the 
sort of a secret uh, goal and dream that we had. You know, I remember talking to Jack about this. Is At that time, Alipay was the smallest business we had. But we both felt that in the long run, it could be the biggest business. Because if you can get people to put their money into your payment system, and you become the leading payment system, you're actually in position to leapfrog banks altogether. Right. And so, you know, in China, if you, I used to go to pay my rent, and I would walk in the bank, and I would see, uh, you know, rows and rows of seats, like 20 seats. Take a number, wait for 45 minutes. By definition, that's just horrible customer service. And so, our our goal all along was that Alipay could become uh, even more important than the other businesses. And when you solve the problem like payment, then what Alibaba did was spin it off into this Ant Financial, which is now privately valued at about $60 billion. Right, it's got, it's got UA Bao, uh, the, the money UA market. Bao, yeah. And um, I, I think also, and insurance, Pinan Insurance is... Insurance, so they're UA Bao, which is a uh, money market fund. You know, yeah. they launched a money market fund with slightly better interest rates than the banks were giving. And within a few months, they... Uh, they'd raised $93 billion and became one of the largest mutual funds in the world. And that's just one example. So if you think about it, wealth management, um, insurance, all these other things, because now in China, everyone's doing everything online. What, what allowed them to s- scale up into that new market? Was it the, the trust with the brand? Was it the pre-existing account relationship? What was it that allowed him effectively to do that well everyone felt comfortable putting their money into Alipay and so once you have that you're just a few buttons away from a million other products so uh, we convinced people because they were so used to using Alipay to pay uh, for products and it seemed to work for them and so that's how they started to shop so then it's just a few clicks away from insurance or uh, certificates of deposit I heard that uh you know, given the fact that there isn't a very well-established credit rating scheme in China, that right. you know, one of the things Jack did was use data from people's um, willingness to to pay their bills on time on Taobao as a kind of a proxy for a credit rating. Yeah, it's actually, um, you know, the the problem in China with is that there really are no credit systems. I mean, this right. is one reason e-commerce was much faster to take off in the U.S. because. The U.S., we always had the Better Business Bureau. We had credit ratings. You know, we had ways to hold people accountable or research them. But in China, that didn't exist. The banks mostly served the large state-owned enterprises. But the small, medium-sized enterprises and individuals, no one had credit history on them. And so by having all this money flowing through Alipay and through Taobao Tmall, Alibaba could see which little businesses were selling the most products, um, who was paying on time, who was doing hundreds of transactions without disputes. That became more valuable than any sort of credit rating that people would get through, say, credit cards. So yeah, that's tremendously valuable. It's just another example. You know, in India, people talk about, oh, logistics is so poor, so e-commerce can't take off. But now what you're seeing is e-commerce companies creating their own logistics system and then spinning it off to become a third-party logistics provider. So the bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity. It's just you need to be the one to solve it rather than wait for someone else to solve it for you. There's this curious tension between the idea that marketplaces work on scale. So generally there's a winner-takes-all winner game in global marketplaces like Google. Um, 
But a lot of what you're talking about here is advantages that come from being very local, knowing the cultural you know, mentality of consumers and the very specific local market challenges. So how is this going to play out? Is e-commerce something that will actually be a local winner's game, do you think? Um, I think more and more. It depends. I mean, depends it depends on the market. It I depends guess. on the market. Like if there's language issues, regulatory issues. But, you know, that's sort of, I remember when eBay, when we started our battle with eBay, eBay was claiming to have a 95% of the auction market, which is true. It's just there are only 10 million people <laughs> in China using auctions at all. Yeah. And there's a population of one point, yeah, <laughs> 1.3 billion uh, people. So, you know, the, the wrong assumption eBay had because they were telling Wall Street this, they said, um, you know, we've never lost in a market where we had the lead because the network effects yeah. of this marketplace are so strong. Um, but actually, um, you know, I put in my book, I have the last chapters, Alibaba and the 40 lessons. And one of the lessons is it's better to be best than first. So, you know, too many times you hear about first mover advantage. Actually, if you make something better, um, then you can overcome the network effects of a marketplace. I think in big countries, uh, larger countries, um, you're going to see like local players take the lead. In smaller countries where it's more expensive to set up a whole system um, and maybe where they're already using English, then the, the foreign players can come in. Like, well, I guess eBay was right. You know, once you've got the lead, the network effects kick in. It's just that they didn't have the lead. And uh, it, when Alibaba actually brought the whole of China online, uh, they then became kind of unassailable. Uh, yeah, and it's um, and I think there it was a case of just building something that was better fit the market, and it was still early days. I still think some of these companies could be beat even in uh, the U.S., but it's just a much bigger hurdle to beat them. Uh, do, do you see someone like Alibaba winning in places like India? Is that something that they're going to want to do, or? Do you see it really in a local India, local Indonesia player emerging in those markets? What they seem to be doing, which is, seems to be the smart move, is learning from the mistakes of the U.S. companies that went into China. And the big mistake was that people thought the same platform that worked in the U.S. would work in China. Um, and so if Alibaba has learned anything from that experience, they should know you can't just take something that worked in China and slap it on the uh, Indian market or Southeast Asia. So what they seem to be doing is going and investing, taking right, minority bets. stakes in betting on the local entrepreneur and giving them the freedom to move ahead. Um, that seems to be their strategy. I guess Apple's done the same with placing a big bet on uh, Uber's competitor in China. Right, yeah. So I think um, the better model, find an entrepreneur who lo knows the local market and bet on them um, because, you know, I'm writing this second book about e-commerce and emerging markets. Yeah. Every market I go to, you see a case where the entrepreneurs, the early pioneers, were trying to build the exact replica of something in the U.S. It's just sort of the rocket internet model, right? Well, I was just in Berlin uh, <laughs> last week interviewing the people from yeah. Rocket. And, yeah, I have mixed feelings because they, that's their model is clone and sell. Now... They've actually had success. They sold their Southeast Asia business to Alibaba recently. Um, and I think in some smaller markets, just focusing on building the platform and executing is great. But I'm also skeptical, like, uh, how sustainable are some of these businesses? Like, the best thing Rocket can do, which they seem to do in Latin America, is 
uh, kind of hand it off, let it grow, like they describe it as like a, a teenager growing into adulthood, and then let it go and run on its own rather than try to control it from Berlin. As you've been going through this process of researching this new book on um, emerging markets, do you feel like we're moving to a world that's becoming more homogenous digitally, like we're getting a global digital culture? Or do you think you're seeing signs that we may get more local cultural um, internets, effectively, platforms? Um, It's just tough to say. I think the beauty of the internet is that it's connecting people with similar interests. So you look at India, for example, e-commerce. India has so many cultures, religions. The nice thing about it is e-commerce is allowing people who are scattered around India, maybe with the, that like the same fashion or follow the same religion, or they have now an outlet to kind of go and shop for things or discuss things that are important to them. So they can, on the one hand, further strengthen whatever they're passionate about rather than have it be sort of homogenized. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I think it, both forces are at play. The, you know, when you in the U.S. now, when I go back home, there's no shared cultural experience because everyone's watching their fragmented media. I can't understand how is Trump rising because <laughs> I don't watch the same shows that all these Trump people are voting for. I, I thought the world was like a much a different world, but well, apparently... you're living in Tokyo. You're living in a very different world. Yeah, that's true too. That's uh, true. And in some ways, probably the most sophisticated physical retail world you know that exists. Oh, exactly. That's a case where you can buy anything in a vending machine and it's so convenient and, you know, you go get your hot coffee from the vending machine, your cold coffee. Um, But that has to do also with just the density, population density. That's why e-commerce is a little less likely to be as big a role in a place like that because, you know, in Tokyo you can go get anything, just take a couple subways. But if you're in uh, Colombia in a small village and you've just got enough money to buy a smartphone, instead of buying it at a 43% margin from the guy at the shop down the street, you have it sent from Bogota instead. Yeah, and, and I think in places like Bogota and, and other places in South America, uh, they have a very strong emerging digital culture. Right. Uh, I think because they really, social networking is in their DNA. Uh, it's just going to be interesting how new models evolve here that are potentially relevant for Indonesia or Brazil or other places. Exactly. I think it's um, that's what's been fun for me is to go around and see these things developing. And I do think, uh, you know, I was living in China when SMS was just taking off. And then I came back to the U.S. and no one wanted to send a text message. You know, the Western world is more individualistic. Um, a lot of different theories of why. Um, the most compelling one that I've seen is this research it says in China, you know, rice cultivation meant people had to collaborate more and have stronger social ties because you had to depend on everyone around you. Um, now, whether or not that really explains it, I don't know. But actually, you look outside Europe and the U.S. and you actually see people are much more social and connected, um, I think, because of the family structures. Well, Bodo, it was great to hang out. Uh, Great to meet you here in Colombia. And, uh, of course, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.